I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. Anti-bias approaches in early education are about centering equity, tackling bias, and creating beautiful, ethical learning experiences and environments with and for children in the early years. Now about to be released in its fourth edition this month, the anti-bias approach in early childhood has been a key publication in the history of exploring diversity, identity, and inclusion in Australia's early education sector. To discuss the new edition of the anti-bias approach, Lisa and I are joined by the book's editor, Dr. Red Ruby Scarlett, the book's contributors, Tasha Huddy, Rukmini, Bose-Rahman and Sharon Mathers. Red, Tasha, Rukmini and Sharon, welcome to the Early Education Show. But Red, let's start with you as the driving force behind this book. If people aren't familiar with the anti-bias goals or principles, how would you introduce them? Oh, well, first, Liam, thank you so much um, for having us on the show. It's um it's always a privilege to come back to the three L's and this incredible activist space that um, you've created for us all. So it's uh, it's humbling and it's a great privilege to be able to be speaking about anti-bias because on one hand it has been, you know, such a nucleus of early childhood education, but on another hand it's something that still needs lots and lots of um, support and attention and lots and lots of conversation. And so I guess this fourth edition, a little bit wavery in my voice, it makes me a little bit nervous. Um, this fourth edition um, was uh, designed to try to, I guess, open its arms and cuddle in the diversity of who the profession are. And I guess there's a couple of things about it that um, I guess make the goals something that are deeply relatable to people. So I've got this this complex job of um, of holding together something that has a long history and people are emotionally attached to in lots of different ways. So that there are a lot of complexities to juggle. But I think that if the goals are something that people feel that they are within and that they're attached to, then we have the opportunity to work collectively um, to bring them to their fruition and I, I guess essentially to transform children's lives and our lives as professionals. So I guess engaging with the goals this time around, they've had a small twinkle. Whilst we stay quite true to the original goals produced by Louise Derman Sparks and the Anti-Bias Task Force in 1989 and the way that they were then so beautifully carried across by Elizabeth Dow and Barb Creaser, who were the original editors of the first anti-bias approach in early childhood in 1995. This time, though, I guess society's changing or the ways in which we talk about who people are the questions about self-determination and the ways in which children are identifying really needed some attention. The other thing that the goals needed to encompass is the changing paradigms or the theories, the worldviews, the cosmologies that we're drawing on or leaning into to, I guess, undertake our work. So there's a few changes to the goals. One is that they are now not just for children, so they clearly encompass educators. Even though they're always intended for everybody, it clearly says children and educators. And not only are the goals 
I'll just use the first one as an example, that children have um, you know, a wonderful sense of who they are, a really strong identity, so that children have that, educators have that. But it's not just focusing on the individual child, it's focusing on themselves and others. And so making those words really explicit within the goals is, is a little twinkle to kind of shift to a more collective type of discussion rather than focusing on like applying them to a child as an individual, but looking at who we become within our social contexts. The second change in the goals is that some of the language in goal two has changed in order to encompass the, the ways in which all children, but particularly children who are gender diverse or gender questioning or transgender, and this complexity we have around skin colour, and that applies to many cross-cultural people, but particularly to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have fair skin. So this idea of self-determination, we've loosened up the goals so that they attest to those complexities that aren't necessarily about, you know, dark skin means this and paler skin means And the third change is that in the third goal, we we've introduced this idea of um, not only are they are the goals framed up for human goodness and activism, but also the more than human or the non-human is the term that we've used. And that will be new to some people. Um, but I guess if you think about it, you can't be human without standing on the ground because we have gravity. You can't be human without air because you would you would you'd be dead. Um, so I guess it's that looking at those very um, interactive ways in which we are human and how the world around us creates that. So it's the human within its its physical environments. So I, I hope people um, enjoy them, and it'll be really fun to see what people do with these goals. There are some gorgeous stories in the book, particularly um, there's quite a list of teachers who are face to face, and I have to hold the baton for people who are face-to-face -face with children doing this work now. When I started doing this work, you know, long time ago um, when we began studying it in my PhD and I was in a classroom then, it's different to what I did today in my classroom. So I think that the idea of always keeping things updated to see what it looks and feels like now um, is really important. And one of the ways to do that is to work with the teachers like the three beautiful ones you have as your guests that you'll hear from, um, are they living those anti-bias ways, goals, practices, etc. Red, can I interrupt for a minute? I, um, that was a wonderful introduction to the revised book. I think that possibly some of our readers, and I know that this will come to you as an absolute shock, some of our readers, they're not readers, they're listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Get yeah, medium, like right, Lisa? Some of our readers will have heard of these things called the anti-bias goals but wouldn't have any familiarity with them and certainly wouldn't know what they are. Can you summarise them for those readers so that they know, or even read the whole four of them if you want so that they know, you know, what it is, what they are? I think she's asking you for dot points, Red. <laughs> That's not like her. <laughs> so I gave the, I gave the, uh, the epic soliloquy and I'm now being reduced to a dot point but let me do that exact thing Lisa. So the anti-bias goals in the 2020 edition read as such. Goal number one, each child and educator will demonstrate self-awareness, confidence, family pride and positive social identities for themselves and others. 
Goal number two, each child and educator will express comfort and joy with human diversity. Accurate language for human differences, reflecting on how individuals express themselves and deep caring human and non-human connections. Goal number three, each child and educator will increasingly recognise unfairness, have language to describe unfairness and understand that unfairness hurts themselves and others. And goal number four, each child and educator will demonstrate empowerment and the skills to act with others or alone against prejudice and or discriminatory actions. Thank you. They're wonderfully expressed and I love the way you've adapted them and shortened them for this um, edition and clarified them as well. And you did the wonderful explanation earlier of why you've done all of that. But, um, you know, I, th I think it is rec important to recognise that not all educators, not all teachers will have come across them before. As much as you'd like the whole world to know about them, <laughs> especially the whole early education and care world, they don't all know about them yet. Mm. Yeah, I guess that part of the um, part of the wonderful complex intra-entwinglement of putting the book together is that we have these wonderful foremothers who've brought it to us and people who've been around for a really long time working with this stuff. And then we've got people who have just come across them, people who have just got the courage to work with them or working in spaces where they're encouraged to work with them, which, of course, would be ideal that there's this will to be able to do it. So I really um, I feel quite excited about um, the way that this edition really focuses strongly on on practice and some of that practice is well experienced and some of it is fresh and new. And can I just ask a few practical um, questions? If you had bought the third edition of, um, of the book, why would you buy this edition? So thank you for asking that question. So in the academic world, it's kind of a thing going, oh, the new edition's out, well, the, the last one must be old. And what I deliberately did was, um, I guess, try to, to freshen it up with new stories that are current and contextual now, particularly with people that have been working with the third edition, because it was different from the first two. So... If, I, if anybody is out there that has achieved everything in the third edition, please call me. Um, the relevance of the third edition is, is just as current as what this fourth edition is, despite the change in the goals and the addition of the anti-bias actions, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So, for example, this book is much smaller. There are, there are less chapters. They're shorter and it really has a strong focus on practice. The previous edition still has those things, but it also does things like it, you know, it has a chapter by Felicity McArdle and Al Olson around art and anti-bias. You know, there was a, a chapter in there about post-humanism and anti-bias. So those ones aren't necessarily in this, this fourth edition, which is why I'm avoiding calling it the new one, um, because those ones are still relevant. So I think being able to, I guess what I'm trying to do is just create this wonderful, enormous repository and the more and more people we can get in and collectively collaborate, um, I think 
yeah, that's essentially the, the the broader vision of what it means to hold this baton of um, gathering and editing and, and putting it into a book. So I, the third edition is just as relevant. Do you feel at all that um... – I'm not going to ask that as a question. I'm going to make it as a statement. As someone who's had the privilege of reading this edition um, via proofreading it, um, I find this a lot more um, accessible than the previous edition. Is that what you tried to do as an editor? Yes. So I put the feelers out on the third edition. It was it was, it was lovingly called the brick. <laughs> Because it was so it's so enormous and it weighed a kilo, but I just kind of said, "Oh, look, at least you'll build a bit of muscle or lose a lose a pound or something every time you." It's really good for Zoom meetings. I just shove it under my laptop to bring my camera up a bit higher. <laughs> and ever at the font is like, "Yeah, well, we were inclusive of people like me who have to read with glasses." Um, so when I embarked on putting this fourth edition together, which was about 18 months ago. Of course, I've been terribly ill this year, so it was a much slower process than um, than I had anticipated. But I asked people of a range of, with a range of different qualifications, a range of different experiences, um, all different roles across the profession, what they thought of it. And I said, be, you know, be it out on the table, what worked, what didn't, what, it, what was scary, what was fun, what was nourishing, what was, you know, not. And I tried to collect all of that and twinkle this one to make it a little bit more friendly. So it's almost like, and, you know, you think about fair's fair. So obviously after the brick, then you made me do the dot point version, <laughs> um, which is the best thing that, you know, we've ever done. So I guess, I guess as we keep producing these resources, what we're doing is we're giving people lots of different entry points so that, you know, they might start with Fair's Fair and then they'll go to the fourth edition and then they'll go to the third edition for other things. So it really doesn't go in a progressive line. And true to my wonderful post-human uh, framework, it's that it's a it's a squiggly intra-entwinglement that doesn't have a teleology of, a you know, an end point. It's really about diving in and out of things and starting where you feel like you can have something small and achievable. And I think that this book does that, which is also why we introduced the anti-bias actions. And I know I got 10 out of 10 from you for that too, Lisa. <laughs> you did. You sure did. It's a I rare moment, rare moment. <laughs> one of the things that um, I, you know, certain academics do and do really well is they not ju don't just tell you what they've found or you know what the theory is, but they also tell you how to implement it. And I think that these actions will be a lot more implementable for a lot of educators and a lot of managers of services. You know, yeah. Mm. Do you agree? Well, well, I've got to stand by them, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, she doesn't. <laughs> it's uh, well. I always struggle with that idea of telling people what to do. <laughs> believe it or not, um, and I guess I've never found that ready. <laughs> it's um. I guess I wanted to provide a scaffold that enabled enabled people to have a go because you know. Part of the work isn't just I'm writing about antibiotics, I've got to talk how do you deal with discrimination in practice, blah, 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 blah. It's also what does it look like pedagogically? Because I think, you know, and, and this is part of the 
the thing I'm going through at the moment is people can talk about anti-discrimination broadly, but it needs to be done by teachers for teachers within the context of pedagogical approaches. And so I want people to feel really good about themselves and I want people to feel really confident to have a bit of a go. And so I guess the actions are, are a scaffold and a starting place. And I guess they they kind of are relatable because there's a little bit of intertwingling with the national quality standard, um, but generally they're things that people go, oh, I can have a go at that or, you know, that action might take me a year, let's put that in the plan or that one we, we know we can address immediately, let's start with that because we're going to have a small success out of it. So I think that was the purpose that they're not, it's not a set of instructions to follow by any stretch of the imagination, but I think trying to, you know, glean the the essence of what's in all of the beautiful chapters from all the incredible contributors and put something together that um, gives a little, a potent scaffold, I guess you could think of it as. Well, I think that's a really good segue, right? I know I, I really want to get to the rest of our guests um, who have some Interesting things to say. Look, Fred, probably just one more question. There's probably no way to answer this question quickly, but I, I, I do want to flag it. But um, where people may be most familiar with you in terms of your work with social justice and early childhood and, and that group, um, what for you, like for what's the, how does that anti-bias and social justice stories, how do those two stories sort of work together? What's the overlap there around social justice and anti-bias? The social justice group, I guess, was formed on anti-bias principles. So there's a, I'll send you the little link. The, uh, there's an interview I did um, as my former self with Betty Hopson and um, it was the year of tolerance when uh, John Howard was voted in the social justice group was formed and that was around the time anti-bias had made its way to Australia. So they are actually completely interlinked. And I think that the relationship between anti-bias practices and the social justice group was bringing together um, what you do in your everyday classroom, but also how you become an advocate and an activist. So looking at those things, how advocacy and activism is part of your practice and how your practice, your anti-bias practices feed into that activism. Wonderful. And I think we'll probably be able to touch on those themes again as we talk to um Tasha, Rukmini and Sharon, but um, maybe let's turn to, to some of the amazing contributors we've, we've got in the book. So I might start with you, uh, Tasha. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and then and if you can give us a bit of an overview of your contribution to Anti-Bias, the fourth edition. Thanks, Liam and Lisa. Um, hi, I'm Tasha. I'm an early childhood teacher in the Lower Blue Mountains and um, I'm just I'm actually extremely nervous, but extremely privileged to be here and um, just so excited that um, Red asked me to contribute to this chapter. Um, so the, for, the, for me, what happened is I work for an amazing service that has the most beautiful director and, and just such a wonderful team. And um, I just felt that we needed to kind of delve into it more and kind of unpack it a little bit further and to see that we were really truly doing what was in our hearts and what, what we felt was the best possible best possible start for children so we started this on our own with our own sort of action research project and then we called upon the fabulous red to come and give us a bit of inspiration and guide us a little bit further so red's actually worked with our whole staff team which is 20 of us and has worked also with our 
smaller um, teaching team of the teachers and diplomas that um, that form the basis of the program. But obviously, it is a full team effort. So. Then Rad said, would you like to write about celebrations, which is why I'm here. It's really weird just talking because I'm such a hands talker. Um, so, so she said, and I'm actually sort of going to look at my, what I've written because I hadn't read it for ages. And I actually think what I've written here, like we've already sort of gone beyond this part of the journey. But it was, yeah, anyway, Red said to me, do you do celebrations at preschool? And I went, no, God, no, no we don't do celebrations at all. Because my brain was just going Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, and, and our services and our preschool doesn't really do that. We've been there. We've done the presents for mums and dads and uncles. If your dad, you know, we've done all that. And I've worked at many services that have the chain line of children and glitter. But we had sort of moved beyond that. But that's, in my mind, what a celebration was. So I, I at first said, no, don't do it. And then I sat down to write this and went, oh, my gosh. Actually, every day is a celebration and I had to really sit down with my director and the other teachers and other educators and actually start to unpack what a celebration was. So I actually think in writing this, you get a bit of an insight into my quite crazy brain because it, it sort of goes a bit all over the place going, well, what is a celebration? And... The family is a celebration. And so what are we actually celebrating and celebrating culture? So it, it, it actually made me really sort of start to unpack what a celebration is. So without going into it all, because I want you all to buy and read the book, there's your plug read. Um, for me, it actually really showed the importance of working as a whole team and really the importance of unpacking your beliefs and critical reflection on everything you do. Um, constantly questioning your why and the why is the philosophy of the of the service that you work at. And I mean, the, the preschool I work at has such a beautiful progressive and just all inclusive philosophy um, and, and just make sure you're living it. So it is about, you know, um, unpacking it with your 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 teams um, unpacking it with the children what's important to the children we we can't celebrate every cultural celebrations but which ones are meaningful to the children or to our community or to us as educators um what celebrations are important to the children um it's making sure the children feel included um, and the families feel included. We've done a lot with fans. It's actually been a bit sad with COVID because we had gone sort of into celebrating family by inviting the families into the service once a term and kind of, you know, it was like a more, it was a breakfast, our barbecue breakfast. And so we've also raised money for community charities. So we were sort of trying to reach out to the community, the families were there and not just, you know, mum and dad and brother and sister, but, you know, for families that, have connections to people that aren't blood relatives that you know everyone was invited and it was these beautiful mornings where we got to celebrate each other so yeah I mean that's that's for me it, it's just been a bit of a an amazing journey and, and then just reading back over it going wow I could write something even a little bit more different now but you know it's all a journey and that's a big part of social justice and the anti-bias goals and curriculum and the other thing that's really good about it is that you've shared that with other services through writing the chapter and services can learn and think about their own. And it's not 
a theoretical discussion, like you actually talk about your practice. Yeah, I try to do that. I, I actually, when I read it, I thought, wow, I feel like I'm writing a bit of a story, um, which contrasted with Sharon's piece. It was just beautifully written too. Um, it was it was actually a lovely contrast to them. But yeah, I wanted people to be able to read it and say, okay, that's what she's done, or that's why she has or hasn't done it. Because sometimes I feel that we do in early childhood get a bit stuck on things. And I know I've been stuck on things, which is why we reached out to Red going, okay, we want to do this, but how? How do we start? So yeah, I I hope there's um, some order in there for people to see that it looks at critically reflecting and, and the importance of working what's with your fabulous team and, you know, um, inspiring each other to celebrate everything and anything or nothing. It's up to you. <laughs> I like the idea of celebrating nothing. Um, the I'm interested, uh, Tasha, so celebrations can be one of those things that it, it seems to be one of those terms that can get the pitchforks out in early education quicker than almost anything else, having been on the receiving end of uh, that myself on more than one occasion in terms of my own views on that. But um, it, and you, as you sort of said, that process of critical reflection, because often these things are really held quite dear to people and they're so ingrained in um, particular understandings of um, how you know, early education is done. Um, and I'm sure when you talk, you know, that that work with the team um, has progressed over time and has been there and there have been lots of interesting discussions. Are you able to sort of talk a bit more about, you know, was it that that sort of discussion around celebrations, was there resistance or were there, were there particular discussions where things had to be overcome and how was that, how was that done in your team? Um, look, I don't think there was resistance, but all of us, I mean, myself, in, I have a 15-year-old and I've still got the things that she made at daycare for me, you know, the Mother's Day things and the the little cards, you know, saying what does mummy do for a job and, and, and yes, they're beautiful and they're lovely. But I think for us it sort of came down to that our program um, just it didn't always seem as authentic um, as it could be because it seemed to be at times held together by celebrations and events, you know, oh, quick, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, but why have we got to do it? Is it our job to actually teach the child about their family. They, they are the experts of their family. They are the experts of their culture. Um, so I think it was a way really of a stepping back and saying, are there other ways that we can do this rather than sitting there making beautiful clay bowls for our family? And and I think for us, that's what it's been about. Um, you know, we've we've tried in varying ways. Um, we, we did set up like a sort of crafty sort of area at one point for the children and it was you know family books so they could come we can talk about you know I'm, I'm using Mother's and Father's Day because that's always the best one to use to um, spark emotion um, you know so the children could come in and they can choose if they want to make something and create but you know it, it didn't really work for us um, you know we did we have had families that ask us if we're making something for an event or what have you know have we done a Christmas present and we, we explain what we're doing see at the moment part of our social justice project is actually putting together a commitment statement that will actually um, be given to the families as part of their enrollment package that that explains our commitment to social justice and the anti-bias curriculum and why we do what we do so it's you know very transparent for families but I you know if a child came in and said I need to make a Christmas card for 
of course, like anything, you would do that, but it's not something we mass produce and yeah, anymore. Sorry, things keep popping up on my screen. No, totally okay. Look, um, thanks for sharing that, Tasha. And I'm interested. I think that point there about the the philosophy and the that this this these things are explained to families and children prior to them starting is such an important is such an important um, point. And I'm interested. Like, is that what are some of those conversations with families like when they when when they when you're sort of explaining to them that actually this is the way we kind of operate for this particular reason we have these principles of social justice because what I found in in talking with centres is we often try and implement some of these approaches um, but they haven't done that work around either updating their philosophy or being being upfront with families you know at, at the start about how those sort of things work that's where some of the challenges. Um, come from but it sounds to me like you've you've done that work as a team around um right from the start so families know the environment they're coming into and is that does that still create they still sometimes families are going oh you know I, I i really want the 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 handprint on the card or whatever it is oh, look I, we we're still in that process we haven't actually finalized any sort of commitment statement we're we're sort of progressing with that for next year but look our philosophy it really does explain um, that we are here to advocate for the rights of all the children and all the families. Um, and we get, I don't think we've really had um, faced any like major wars um, particular, particularly, but um, I think well, when, when issues have been brought up, you know, we explain we're here for all the children and, and we will teach things in a way that shows acceptance for all and it's it's not about our agenda and it's not about the agenda of one family but it's all inclusive for everybody i think I that that, i think generally the message must be getting out there I, I i noticed a post the other day that said it was the standard kind of can i have a list of all the multicultural days but then it had a subtext on it which said because I want to work out the ones that are relevant to our centre. And I thought, even if they're not totally there, they understand that, that that it's a bit of an embarrassing thing to ask in a way. So I thought the people, those of you that are, are trying to get the sector to understand a little bit or to think more reflectively about celebrations are actually making ground. So good on you. That was the thing that when I was writing, that it is all about the critical reflection and and your philosophy and, and you know, um, believing in what you do and being able to justify what you're doing as well as being an advocate for your community, for your children, for your families. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that that comes across in, in my little piece. It does. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. So, Red, Red, I didn't know as, as editor if you wanted to maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, why this story you thought was a was an important one to share in the in the in the in the new edition. So, I guess I'd had firsthand experience with um, beautiful Blacksland Preschool and Tash here, and Sharon, who you're going to hear from um, down at the Y in Canberra, and what I the the ways we went about these projects and the methods were both very different the conversations had similar themes to them but the information that came out and the the experiences pedagogically and emotionally were significantly different and 
the celebrations chapter has had a really interesting history and it, it it's um I, I wanted something that was current that really gave some different you'll hear from Sharon about that um and the ways in which she kind of went about it and I just really loved the differences in the approaches but the authenticity to the local communities in which they played out and I mean just the idea that this was happening in practice both of them were whole centre projects which is actually one of the anti-bias actions um, and I just, you know, these are people working with children now, working through this stuff together as a team, and I thought that would be really um, special to have those two um, examples. So they've kind of formed the one chapter. Well, it's probably a good segue maybe now to bring Sharon in um, and to sort of continue on this theme uh, before we come to a Rook Mini as well. Um, but Sharon, uh, why don't you start by introducing yourself and, and and the context you're coming from and then talking about your contribution to, to this edition of the Antibias in early childhood. No worries. Um, I, I suppose I want to start the same way as Tash and say just thank you for having, having me. And I so agree with so much of what Tash said. The chapters did complement each other. Um, and for me, there's 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 a quite emotional side to this sort of a journey we went on um, personally, but also um, I think the journey that we went on as a team really had a big impact. And you know, just for the context, um, when all this started, I was the director of Holder, of which I'm now not. However, I am continuing the conversations with the school aged care programs that I'm working with, as well as the early learning services at the Y as well. Um, and continuing those conversations around anti-bias. And I have had some conversations around celebrations recently with some of the school age care coordinators and, yeah, fascinating. Um, but from my perspective, I remember sitting with Elizabeth Dow years ago um, uh, back in the Inclusion Support Agency talking about celebrations. In fact, at the time we did this massive debate with certain directors and different perspectives across um, the ACT. Um, and I've had all of this opportunity in, you know, anti-bias and so forth, and I still struggled with how to support, um, you know, our teams and, and our wonderful educators and so forth in how to approach it. And I, I wanted to do something to help give them some confidence, I think, about what they wanted to do, um, you know, when it came to celebrations, but also as Tash said, doing it authentically and and um, in a way that is not biased and that, or tokenistic, like, you know, and as I said in my chapter, some of the things you see, you know, in services over, over the years, you know, the whole at Easter time you're always doing the egg hatching. Well, why, you know, and um, things like, you know, uh, let's celebrate Father's Day and Mother's Day, but what about some of those families um, or those children in our services that don't have that person in their lives? So, you know, these conversations kept coming up with um, with our team and our educators and, you know, answering them is not easy on a single basis just with little old me. <laughs> so um, the aim was to to extend our original social justice project and and ask the team what questions they had around um, antibiotics, some of those uh, social justice uh, things in relation to to extending our work when it comes to inclusion. And the celebrations was the one thing they wanted to do. Yay! 
Um, mind you, the can of worms that opened was pretty scary. The amount of questions that I sent to Red in the very first email um, asking if she'd come along and help us, I, you know, was almost embarrassed sending them because there was just so many of them. Um, but our work um, went over, uh, I think it was three, three, three four months. Um, we had three sessions. We broke everything down. I think the key was reflection on our own beliefs and values, um, particularly with the celebrations that people thought they should be doing or knew of. Um, and then when they did their research on those celebrations, such as um, St. Patrick's Day, which nobody knew who St. Patrick was. Um, oh, and, no. <laughs> and things things like, you know, the Melbourne Cup, you know, what relevance does it have around racing with children? Um, and let's celebrate gambling with children. Um, so, yeah, there was all these discussions. I think the most heated one would have been, um, Red would probably agree, would be the Mothers and Fathers Day one. Um, and, yeah, as Tash said, the conversation around keeping those gifts over the years was um, important to a lot of our team. And um, also the fact that we had quite a few uh, staff um, educators in the group that um, had different family relationships. Um, one of our staff members, for instance, had her child was by an egg donor. So, you know, for that, that person, she actually got quite upset and a bit heated. And I think one thing about our Holder team, um, and for context, there's 33 of us, um, extremely, extremely diverse team, um, comes from all walks of life and very passionate and um, very reflective and very opinionated in great ways. Um, they do listen to each other and um, I think our work in our earlier project helped that. Um, yeah, but, you know, at the end of the project, I think what the goal and outcome was that reflection is a key, using the framework, your early years learning framework as a guide, the practices and principles, but more than anything, really understanding what it is that you are sharing with children. Um, and, and, you know, what, what are the children's questions? What do they know? And then, you know, using intentional teaching and an extension of learning to, to build on that. But, um, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the project. Um, I, I think for, me, for myself, I, I somehow wish I was still there doing some more work. Um, but I'm trying to encourage, obviously, the new um, director and new team to, to keep things going. Um, we did, at the end, come up with a statement um, that the team, um, all their words and the way that they felt about celebrations. Um, we have an inclusion statement that which we had from our first project and that um, a paragraph that they put together around the celebrations is included in that inclusion statement. And that statement is discussed with families on enrolment. So um, families do have a very good understanding of our in inclusion values and beliefs at Holder um, and are very, very supportive with it. Uh, had families that have given feedback around um, being really, you know, happy to see the diversity and have those um, challenging discussions. So, yeah, it, it was a great, great, great experience, to be honest. And, um, yeah, I, I, I just hope that they are continuing it. I mean, every, you know, each, each group and team are different. So um, we'll see, yeah, who knows? Hopefully, I'm going to keep the words going anyway. <laughs>
I'm interested. Uh, look, maybe this is a distinction that doesn't exist, but it's interesting in hearing um, uh, Tasha talk and then yourself. I'm uh, I'm interested in w- w- the, the sector itself is quite desert, uh, diverse in terms of um, makeup. So obviously Tasha's coming from a, a standalone service, as I as I understand it, um, whereas you're part of you know uh, the, the broader Y community and and Y Canberra. Do you think there are additional challenges for um, for services that are sort of having to fit with maybe within a broader a broader ethos of a, of a particular um, you know, approach, but also there are often greater pressures around you know um, occupancy and those and those things where there's maybe a bit more of a desire to you know to um, to do the things that make families more happy in those larger groups. Um, Essentially, having worked in both myself, was that something you sort of encountered as a bit of a challenge at the Y as well, or, or, or was that not much of an issue for you? Um, the Y themselves have always been very supportive of um, my work around uh, social justice and um, you know anti-bias goals and so forth. Um, so I haven't had that much of a pushback. However, I think that um, within organisations, uh, obviously staff turnover is high and you do get um, people that come on board that might have different values and beliefs. Um, Look, an example I could say would be that, um, you know, the event calendar of celebrations, which happened to be mentioned earlier, um, I've seen that raise its head in the last couple of weeks actually. And, you know, I understand and I think it's important that we understand that everybody is on a different journey when it comes to their understanding of these topics um, so for pushback, no, I haven't um, had too much pushback. Um, however, as new people come on board, they get to know me, then I might slip something into the side and get them to reflectively think about things. And, um, yeah, and, and I'm a bit of an open-ended question person that likes to challenge. Um, I think everybody knows me knows that. Um, but, yeah, I, I do agree. Different services can have different perspective. And when it comes to families and utilisation, um, the pushback, I think, can be quite tricky from families at times. But if, if as, you know, the, the leaders of our services, we have that strong ethos and we work well with our team. And I think articulation is really important too, um, understanding uh, the language and, and the, the ways to talk to families and um, your teams and and even management around. I think it, it's like Red said. We've got to be strong. I think and um, you know, you know, really. Um, how can I put it? I'm, I'm getting tongue tied with my works. But you have to be. I think we have to be strong. We have to um, challenge and ask questions and and get people to reflect on their practices around these topics, particularly celebrations. I think some of the things you can see out there can be quite tokenistic and you know it's like Groundhog Day. That makes sense. Did I answer that question, Liam? You did. Absolutely. Oh, I'm not Liam, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see that Red has her hand up, which you can't really see on a podcast, no. but I can see that. I'm asking permission to unmute. Fine. One of the specific things that I particularly loved about um, your project, Sharon, was that time. So we we took the time rather than just going, do we do them, do we not? Mm. 
we then brainstormed up a whole lot of um, celebrations that were important to people and then we actually we looked at the histories of them Mm. and we had to get three sources because the Y actually claims that it invented Father's Day. So that (laughs) we found we found that there were like so three sources, three different conflicting sources for all of those days, Mm. which was really interesting. And then we after we did that and we researched the history of them and the conflicting um, trajectories, we then looked at what the common themes were across those things. So in early oh, childhood, one of yeah. our mantras is that we, whatever, you know, we've got to bring the community in. Mm-hmm. But the, the three top themes of that project were um, gambling, drinking <laughs> and um, dancing yeah. or something. And I, and I said, okay, so if that's, if those are the three things, I can't wait to go into your birth to twos room because you're going to have a cocktail bar set up. You're going to have a two-up corner and you're going to have a nightclub in the well, change teach room. them how to be proper Australian. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that exactly. what you've got to do as educators? Get income. <laughs> we certainly had a good laugh with that, didn't we? We did. But, I mean, that really goes to show that whole thing yeah. of um, how something is celebrated out in it. Like it shows where the critical thinking, the edginess of the critical thinking mm. needs to be, yeah. not just do we do it or do we do it, how do we investigate it? But then when we when we come up with those themes, to say that we bring the community in is highly problematic because those cultural things then produce things like domestic violence or they produce addiction yeah. or they produce this and that. And so, you know, in all seriousness, um, being able to flesh those out, and I think that was one of the most wonderful, complex, powerful moments of that Absolutely. project. Mm. Absolutely. There was, yeah, when we, when we broke that down, there was certainly quite a few looks on the team's faces that you could tell that their mindset had just gone, wow, did a 360. And somebody yeah. said, I think I need a vodka. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we all needed a vodka after the end of that. I went for a turmeric tea myself. Yeah. No, that, yeah, that there was certainly a lot of reflection going on, a lot of mindset changes after that. And you know, I, I was quite proud of the team for the work that they did and how deep they did actually go into um, all of those celebrations. And, yeah, it, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of uh, thought process went into it and, yeah, it was great. It's a huge gift to the profession, Sharon. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. That sounds like a good segment. And I am yeah. trying to do something similar with school-age care right now, so. <laughs> well, both... Uh... Tasha and Sharon have given you ideas for Volume 5, the original, the fifth edition, Red. So I hope you're taking notes because they, they both want to come back to these chapters and redo them. So, But um, I think it is important we turn to Rukmini now, who's been waiting very patiently as we've had lots of lots of chats about uh, the other chapters. So thanks so much, Rukmini. But why don't you start by uh, telling us your, your context, where you're coming from, and then about your, your chapter in this book. All right, Liam. So um, at the risk of sounding repetitive, I must start by saying thank you very much for having me on here. And of course, it was Red's idea. So thank you, Red, for giving us that opportunity. I feel really privileged to be here today. So um, uh, I am an early learning manager and my service is um, situated on the land of the Boonwurrung and the Waiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. And um, this is work every single day. It's a 150 place centre and um, it's in an urban um, hub, but it's incredible. It's up on the first level, but it has a fully uh, grown outdoor play space, which is incredible. It's like a little 
um, haven up there. So I'm very privileged to work there and I have a very large team and um, that's what I do on a daily basis. And uh, in other times when I get a moment, I do other fun stuff like uh, I am a keen advocate and activist for early childhood people everywhere. So um, I'll just tell you about um, our chapter. So I co-contributed to this chapter with um, Catherine Hyden, and um, it's called Claiming a New Space for Multiculturalism in Early Childhood Education Practice. So this is, um, you know, a topic that's really close to my heart. Um, as you can see, I am a woman of color, and um, I really take it with great pride. I migrated with my family here in the 80s, and um, obviously, I have a keen interest in where I am and my position. I have seen the transformation of color come through our um, sector and uh, how interesting it is and where we are now to when I graduated and I first came into the sector. So, um, yeah, this chapter really covers everything from the definitions and the theories all the way down to a lot of practical um, suggestions of practice and how you can utilize it. It also has something that's really useful in the chapter that Catherine and I really wanted to do in the first instance, which was um, have some, um, I think, some uh, questions for reflection at the end of every section so that you could actually take the topic and then have a read, but then just reflect on how it is for yourself. So um, they're just um, simple questions and you can really think. And each area has those questions in there. So that was trying to make the chapter quite practical, I guess, was our intention there. Um, it goes through a lot of things, um, and I guess one of the things that I love to touch on always is, I guess, prejudice and racism, which comes at the towards the end of the chapter, and where we are with all of that, and you know how modern Australia is, and where we all fit in. Um, you know, personally, I always think that with anti-bias, it's really values-driven. It's about your own values around justice and how you see the world, um, and this chapter kind of touches on the history of multiculturalism and diversity in Australia and how um, I guess it's really something to be uh, celebrated, which is an interesting word since we've talked celebrations for so long. So um, it's really about um, how we're so proud of that is what our identity is. This is a multicultural society, but what does that actually mean for the people who actually inhabit this society? So, yeah, that's a little bit about this chapter. Can I ask a question about one of your reflective questions? Because when yes. I was reading it, it absolutely yes. shocked me because I, I just hadn't naively considered it, that yes. some educators, you said, um, uh, might not have the confidence to bring their own cultural identity to the professional arena. Is that something that you find often happens? And, I, find, I and, find it often happens. It often happens, and which is why I find one of the anti-bias goals to be so incredible and so empowering, which is, you know, for people and educators to focus on themselves and others, because that's the only space that we can begin from. Otherwise, it's impossible. And I see it all the time, which is incredible, because, you know, I am a woman of colour myself, but I do see it. I definitely do. Mm. Red, do you, Red, what about you? Do you have you come across that as well? Yes, I think. Well, I mean, I, I think particularly in the queer community, that's 
true there mm. and um ryan writes about that in um in the masculinities chapter so i i think that, that we could you know kind of say that groups that are marginalized because of the way society is structured um you know that don't just fully participate and i guess the expectation that people fully participate is is needs a bit more critical thinking as rookie said and i think making that visible and being able to talk about it i mean one of the it's a wonderful thing but one of the problems in early childhood generally is that people they always come from a good place in my experience but we want to make everything beautiful and nice and inclusive the problem is inclusion into what on whose terms and what do you become once you're in that inclusion and rookie rookie and i've had lots of conversation about this she's got some interesting things that she's working on that i can't wait to hear more about um so i, I think that's yes it's confidence but it's it's a it's a, no no emotion is separate from who you are and so i think that you know abilities is another one um i think that people go oh you've got diverse abilities no the reason we call it diverse abilities is because everybody's part of that so it's kind of um moving from that space of applying the goals to or bringing someone into um and flipping it the other way and saying well what gets in the way of you being able to participate fully what do you think rook yeah and i think um one of the things i was thinking to myself when everybody was talking is a little bit around you know antibias isn't really something that you apply situationally it's not something you walk in you see something and you go oh i'm just going to apply antibias to this when i look at it or when i talk about it it's just something you have to carry and it's very strongly value driven you just ha- it has to become a part of personal and professional being otherwise you can't really do it um you know so that's probably what it is and that does take a fair bit of confidence because you first need to be comfortable with your own values and belief system to move to that level so that's what's difficult and i think for a lot of newly arrived people in our sector you know i see it and experience it all the time is you know it it is difficult because there's this always this tension where um you know we might feel that if we don't conform to the dominant culture we are not actually doing a good job of blending or so how do you lose yourself yet make yourself stand out yet find the confidence to professionally speak up and to be yourself and all of that that that's hard stuff so you have yeah it is work it's a lot of work that needs to be done there i th- i think i was really shocked when i like i i i have that um i can understand that people of color people of different races um th- it, yeah may find it complex in early education care settings because i often find that there is a thinly veiled um degree of racism across the sector and i the when i first started working in the sector i was amazed at how thin that veil was in some areas but for some stupid reason and maybe it was because i lived in the inner west of sydney i didn't think that that would also extend to things like sexuality or religion and when i discovered that you know there was 
I had friends who were gay educators who weren't out in their setting so that their other staff members, let alone the children, didn't even know they were gay. I was gobsmacked, mm. like absolutely gobsmacked. How can you possibly, you know, bring bring yourself to work every day, you know, with that kind of happening? I understand why they do it, but that's asking an awful lot of people to, hey, just hide this basic core fact of your existence. I suppose in a way, you know, if you if your skin is another colour or your language, you know, you speak English with an accent, um, then it's not, you don't have that luxury of hiding as much as something that, you know, that you can, you know, sexuality is slightly more easier to hide. It's for... Really? Well, yeah, Come on, yeah. Lisa. For some people I think it is, you know. The, the, the educators I knew that were so hiding you hide it. your heterosexuality? Tell us. <laughs> Come on. The clue. I think you just you don't have it. It's easier in in early education care not to have discussions about sexuality. Yeah, but that's yeah. hiding it. And I think well, that the problem is sexuality isn't just um, homosexuality or queer sexualities. It's heterosexuality is a this is a perfect. Yeah, I am red. I understand of, that. Yeah, yeah, but saying hiding sexuality also like we have to throw heterosexuality into that mix. And this is the very discussion. This is the very purpose of why anti-bias conversations are so important because all the things that we're measured against as the inverted commas norm, um, they don't. You know, it is people of color. You know, what does that look like? Who does it include? Who doesn't? Sexuality. Sure also yep. include so I think it's worth noting yeah I just I just like I I just like to say to any listener who is hiding any part of their identity in their work setting that must be incredibly hard for you mm-hmm. and I'd like you to be able to work in a setting where you're not having to do that on a day-to-day basis because I think it would free up whole sections of your headspace, if nothing else, to interact with children, you know, which you're currently guarding. Mm. Yeah. But then on the same time, you know, I read a post in a Facebook group the other day saying, should two educators be able to talk in their own language in the room? Well, people talk in English in the same language. <laughs> I, was, I wanted to say, yeah, I do. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, as um, I feel like I'm the least qualified person to be talking about diversity or multiculturalism as the straight white bloke on the on the phone call, but. Um, Are you Anglican, though, Liam? Yeah, <laughs> I, I no, unfortunately, no. Um, Jedi is actually the official religion, but um, I. The, this needs an episode in and of itself, um, as all of them do. We, we did do an episode on celebrations not that long ago, but we may have to tackle it again. But this, you know, in my very limited and narrow experience in the sector, I've just been fascinated that this is such a tangled issue for the sector because it there's a lot of, there's so I'm, I'm trying to sort out the, the multiple highways in my head about thinking about this, but there are so many complexities attached to this. So a lot of the there's political and uh, implications in terms of how the sector is valued from a socio-political context. So we often have um, 
you know, people from the, the diversity of the sector is in some ways a, a, a function of the fact it's undervalued um, and it's often work that, but the fact that the sector hasn't been able to turn that into a strength, I just find, I've always found bizarre. I mean, my, I, I, yeah, I had the classic upbringing um, and we moved around a lot, but I didn't have a lot of um, engagement with people from different backgrounds than myself. And for me, my experience in the sector has been, has been as a gift many people who otherwise I would never have known and backgrounds and experiences and ways of thinking and being that I wouldn't have known. And it's always kind of boggled my mind that the sector in many cases, and I think we should always be careful not to generalise and that there would be amazing examples of, of, of centres doing this really well. But I think the majority of the experiences I've seen, whereas it's often seen as a, a challenge or something that's difficult and there are discussions about, we've got such a diverse team, how do we deal with that? Where I go, you know, how yeah. do we... Yeah, I just... It, when you think about what some of the key goals of the EYLF and the NQS are, which are about celebrating diversity, even that idea about, you know, educators speaking their own language to each other, where I just go, surely, surely we should be asking how how, how can that happen more often, and I know it sounds like I'm trying to win some sort of woke off contest, and I, I, I this is why I'm being very careful. But I'm just, I, I, I'm fascinated that we, the sector hasn't been able to find a way to turn this into such a success story and such a positive for the sector that we do have such diverse, um, pe you know, people working in our in our centres with children. Um, I have to come to a question at some point, Rukmini, but. But I, I might just say, I'm, I'm interested. I am interested from your perspective as a leader because I think, like I said, I've been so I've been so grateful for the gift that, the, that all of these people I've had the fortune to work with over that time have given me in terms of knowledge and understanding. But I'm interested from the sort of I think the educator perspective, working directly in classrooms with children, that experience. But I'm also as a leader, and and as someone who works alongside leaders from multiple backgrounds, I think there is maybe a different set of challenges that come with being in that leadership position where there's um, maybe um, certain expectations around what leadership should look like and maybe how leadership should be presented. Have you have you seen that transition from from being an educator and a teacher to, to becoming a leader, a director? Have there been different challenges around um, how that how that works? Um, look, Liam, I feel like, um, you know, when I was an educator was a little bit different because the, uh, I was surrounded by the colorful nature of the diversity on my level. Um, since becoming a leader, it's certainly a little bit lonelier because I find that I am in a minority group, especially in the for purpose part of early childhood. Um, but, you know, it's in some ways it's easy for me because I have a privilege. I have uh, language and uh, you know I've been here for many many years so I've done a journey with with my own experience of diversity and how I view it and where I see myself with it all but the the thing that I always find with leadership is that um, what I love is when the colored um, female or male educator approaches me or even the family approaches me and their eyes light up when they actually hear that I'm the manager because it's quite interesting. They they are surprised, but they're also so pleased. And I, I get it now. I just get it because I wear my diversity on my outside and that's what they see. They identify with it and their eyes light up. So, you know, that's when I realized that I, there's much work to be done here in this space, you know. And so um, 
I think, you know, you were saying, why are we not proud and why don't we celebrate the fact that we have this diversity in our sector? And I think we're on our way, but we need to make some, you know, have some active goals to try and achieve that. So, you know, that's like we need to have places where people can build their confidence, build their training, you know, feel like they're a part of this sector. They're not only valued because they're the person who can celebrate Diwali because, you know, it's so exciting that they're there. We've got this Indian person, let's have Diwali. It's not like that. It's much more than that. So we have, there's a way to go with all this work. But yeah, I think as a leader, I just, I, I don't see any of it as a challenge. I just see all of it as, you know, this enriched journey that we just need to navigate this stuff and we got to, we have to get there, you know, um, with our own understanding. But the other thing is as a leader, I find that, you know, basically as a, female of color in leadership role, sometimes you're waiting for the uh, white female of leadership to just kind of share their platform with you a little bit or move aside so you can share that space. So, you know, I hope that because I can, I'm in both camps a little bit because I have my upbringing and my, you know, language and everything, maybe I can share my space with somebody else, you know. So we have to keep doing this. But why we do we have to do that? Why do we have to shove somebody off some platform to have a little say? That's the stuff that, you know, I guess keeps me up at night. <laughs> Can I, that was great. Can I ask everyone, starting with you, Rukmini, um, yes. how did you first come across mm-hmm. the early education or the bias, the anti-bias goals? You know, what was your first introduction to them? Um, my first introduction was studying my diploma in 1995 at Swinburne. And uh, it was one of the main and core texts. And it was just one of the main books. And, um, you know, we didn't spend money on many of the books. But out of the four we bought, that was one of them, you know. That's so incredible. That's and uh, you know, I was uh, one of a class of, I think, maybe 22 people. And I was the only female of colour in that group. Wow. Studying early childhood. What year was that? 95. I think it would be different in 2020. It's very different. Mm. Tasha, what about you? I can't. I was just sitting here thinking I actually can't remember not knowing or not. Um, So I did my diploma in 94-ish and then I later went on to my Bachelor of Education. I feel I've always been aware. I can't remember not, but I probably would say I've worked at Marrickville Council in the early 2000s um, when Anthony Saman was like an area manager there and I think that was when it became a bit more it like sort of it it came more apparent in what I was doing so but that again it's about the leadership that you have um as well I think that's just such an important factor Sharon um it's it's interesting because like I've got no idea about you know dates and years and times but for me it's almost felt like the anti-bias goals were part of who I am from quite a young age and and not just with children's services, personally as well. I think, you know, experiences that people have in their lives will draw them to having these thoughts and values and beliefs around certain things. And for me, it's been 
a journey over the years. Um, but Elizabeth Dow had a strong influence with me. Um, I did see her conference, I think it was, back at Creation Kindergarten Association. I can't tell you how many years ago that was because it just seems like a lifetime ago. And I remember being in awe listening to her. So she had a very strong influence for me. But I think over the years, those goals have resonated with me personally, but also professionally in so many ways. And now it's just who I am. Um, and if you listen to my mother, who will probably listen to this podcast, she says I am the political correct do-gooder. <laughs> Always keep that. Hi, Mum, I know you listen. <laughs> okay, what about you, Red? And then I'm going to ask you too, Lem. So, Red? Um, I came across them when I visited Gowrie as a whippersnapper. And Betty Hobson was there. It was the early 90s. It was it was when it literally, yeah, 89 or 90, 1990. Um, and I, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And it was at my first trip to Erskineville on beautiful Gadigal country where I now live. And, uh, yeah, it's been in every single, like my whole encounter with the profession has always um, had the antibiotic goals front and centre. Okay, that's what the kind of answer I'd expect from someone who had edited two, two <laughs> volumes. Of and did a PhD on it. Yeah. Liam? First I heard about it was when we started preparing for this episode. I'd never heard of it before. No, that's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm probably in the same position. I feel like I, I must have come across it early on in my studies. I definitely uh, remember a... a a certain um, support person at SDN Children Services coming and visiting my centre in Belcon, and he may be on this podcast tonight, Dr. Scarlett, um, oh. engaging with uh, yes, engaging with um, engaging with us around a lot of issues. But there were a lot of amazing um, leaders, particularly at, at, at SDN. There was a lot of discussion around anti-bias, and um, but then through teaching studies as well. Um, but I've got to say, a lot of it has been the anti-bias books and. Um, and that, that work in the social justice um, space. And I've, um, and it might be a little segue because look, this episode's going long, but we have too many exciting people talking about too many exciting things. But um, we should do a very minor plug because I think one of the, the, the things that sort of most interest me about these things are often the political contexts of them. And um, Red was very kind enough to invite Lisa, Leanne, and I to contribute a small chapter. As well, which is which is primarily focused on the political and sort of activist imp implications of of anti bias. But um, I don't know if you, Lisa, you wanted to give people a bit of a a, little, a, a very brief summary of of what we're talking about in that chapter as well. Look, I don't think I could because one of the things that we discovered as we went to write this chapter is we can't write together. No, we're really bad. <laughs> people that have spoken really together for years and years oh, and years. The first um, uh, two or three drafts were just terrible. So what we did was we did it the same way we do the early education show. We each had a had a say on the topic. Um, so all I can say that it was that I think um, all of us were requesting, begging, demanding that people who live and breathe and understand the anti-bias goals, put them into action by becoming activists for children, 
for educators and for the sector. Is that right, Liam, or have I... I think it's a great yes. That's I think that's bad. It's a, look, it's the same stuff we've been banging on endlessly about on this podcast yeah. for the past four and a half years. So if you're not sick about hearing it on this, <laughs> you'll enjoy reading about it in in, in text form. Which is kind of why it's there. And I must say, it did end up to be a beautiful intra-entwinglement. And, Liam, I was thrilled to see the word festooned in your piece. <laughs> Just for you, Red. Just for you. It was, it was included in there. But, um, look, we have uh, kept everyone up very late tonight recording this, so I'm, I'm so grateful for all of you. I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing this book in hard copy and reading the the amazing chapters themselves. Um but and remember, this is just a fraction of what's in there. This is yeah, exactly. We've spoken for like an hour and a half just to you know about two chapters or three chapters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is pretty good. But by our standard, that's not too bad. I was worried this was going to go for three. We, we've we've done relatively well. But um, I want to thank um, Tasha. Rukmini, Sharon, and of course Red for for joining us tonight, talking through um, their chapters, advocating for the anti-bias goals and for social justice, and and advocating for the profession as well. It is it is really amazing, and I'm looking I'm, I'm I guess I'm looking forward to seeing the book. But thank you all so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Liam, and thanks for privileging this as something uh, worthy to talk about. We need to talk about it more and more often. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jarzar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.